Here we can remind ourselves of the nature of this book. Ecclesiastes is a reality check. Ecclesiastes is a slap in the face. It wakes us up from any perceived notion of Christian sentimentality. We are outside of the garden. We do live in a sin-cursed world. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part four of Where Can Meaning Be Found? A nine-part series in Ecclesiastes from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses one through 11. The author of Ecclesiastes was likely Solomon, the richest and wisest king ever to reign in Jerusalem. He begins chapter two this way. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. This is the beginning of a sad autobiographical story, testing pleasure as an answer to life's vanity, seeking it everywhere except in listening to and following his creator. Here's part four of Where Can Meaning Be Found? Ecclesiastes is the memoirs of an old man, an aged Solomon who's reflecting on some bad choices that he made in life. As you look at that narrative in the book of Kings, you see a man who, yes, led the people in worship. Yes, at one time he did lead the people in prayer, and yes, at one time he did worship the Lord. But so subtly, so steadily, we have the testimony of a man who slowly turned his back upon God a man who started to live his life without a proper acknowledgement of the Lord. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, an old Solomon looks back and he reflects on the life that he had lived. Here, he notes the time in which he pursued pleasure, where God was nowhere in the picture, and that's the issue. And he says that pursuit of pleasure without a proper acknowledgement of the Creator is absolute vanity. Every pursuit of pleasure that is not ultimately sourced in God is fleeting and futile. It may bring temporary gratification, but eventually it will only bring frustration. And this is what Solomon is telling us. Now, how specifically then did Solomon pursue pleasure? There are at least three ways that I want to show you in this text, three ways in which Solomon pursued pleasure, a life of self-indulgence, all of them found to be meaningless. The first I've called pleasure by escape, pleasure by escape. And we see that in verse three. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Notice the heart language again, That is a strong and a significant heart that is being invoked. What is it doing? It's drinking wine. Now, this is not referring to drunkenness. You see the qualifying statement there, with my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Solomon is not drinking to the point of losing self-control. He is drinking to cheer his body. What does that mean? He says, to lay hold of folly. 
which I think is a reference to some kind of light-spiritedness. For what reason? To see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. Now, every part of that sentence is significant, so we'll deal with them in turn, beginning with the children of man. You may remember last week, I suggested that Ecclesiastes shows many, many connections with the first few chapters of Genesis. Solomon intentionally writes this book in such a way that our thought should be going back to the first few chapters of our Bibles, with the significance being that what he's trying to show us in this book is what life looks like outside of the garden. We are now east of Eden, and the phrase children of man is one of those references. More literally, you would translate it sons of Adam. These are the offspring of the individual who caused all of creation to come tumbling down. These are the ones who come from Adam, who was the transgressor that caused us to live outside of the garden. He goes on and says, under heaven, the children of man to do under heaven. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this phrase is somewhat synonymous with the phrase under the sun, which we find throughout the book, and it refers to a limited worldview. It refers to the fact that we don't often have eternal things in mind. As sons of Adam that live east of Eden, all too often we simply look at the world around us and we don't consider an eternal perspective. And then he gives us another phrase that says the few days of their life. This is a veiled, subtle reference to death. Death which came about because of the fall. And so Solomon is piling up the terms in order to make us realize and think about the fact that we do live in a sin-cursed world. We are all of us on the treadmill of life. We cannot get off it. We are stuck within the prison of futility, and there is nothing that we can do to get out of it. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to alleviate the situation in which we find ourselves. And yet Solomon is drinking wine. Why? To see what was good. Friends, with all of the connections back to Genesis, is that one word good not also something of a loaded term? You see, it was God and God alone who had the ability and the right to create that which was good. It was God and God alone who said, let there be light, and there was light, and he saw that it was good. God and God alone said, let there be day and night, and there was, and he saw that it was good. It was God that created the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field. He made them and they were good. It is God and God alone who can bring about circumstances which will elevate the heart and the mind out of the monotony of life east of Eden. It is his prerogative to create that which is good. He and he alone can offer us something that is genuinely unwaveringly good. That is God's business and it is not man's business. We cannot create something which is good in the way that God can create something which is good. Our drinking of wine, our laying hold of folly, whatever pursuit we do pursue in life, is never going to be the means by which we alleviate the situation of the broken reality east of Eden. What does all of this mean? Solomon was seeking pleasure by trying to escape. This child of Adam was trying to obtain joy by relieving himself 
of the reality of life outside of the garden. Rather than living in that reality, he was seeking an escape route. He sought that which was good without any reference to God. Here we can remind ourselves of the nature of this book. Ecclesiastes is a reality check. Ecclesiastes is a slap in the face. It wakes us up from any perceived notion of Christian sentimentality. We are outside of the garden. We do live in a sin-cursed world. There is nothing we can do about that fact. We can't alter that fact, but we must learn the skill of living in a sin-cursed world. We must learn the skill of navigating through all that this world brings in such a way that it honors the Lord. And yet escapism is precisely the way in which society pursues pleasure. It constitutes an entire worldview. Escapism is the tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities, especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. Another definition reads, escapism is the avoidance of unpleasant, boring, arduous, scary, banal aspects of daily life. We seek pleasure by trying to get away from the reality of life and enter into a realm that is not real. Wine is one way in which men do this. Entertainment is another. Movie after movie after movie, wherein we are drawn into this imaginary world. And why do we like it in there? Because in that imaginary world, our problems don't exist. In that imaginary world, our issues do not confront us. Consider the internet. You can go wherever you want. You can look at whatever you want. You can pursue a relationship with whomever you want. You can portray yourself however you want. And they can portray themselves however they want, without any wrinkles, without any warts. Why on earth would anyone want to do that? Because when you exist in that world, the reality of life is not present. Your issues, your problems, the sin that exists is gone. It is a make-believe reality. This occurs on the micro level also. In 1985, Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Now think about this, 1985 he was writing. Two of the most problematic words in our language are now this. It's a phrase that every news reporter learns. It is the means by which they transition from one story to another. But rather than connecting two thoughts, now this separates everything from everything. The thought being that there is no story that is so troublesome, there is no story that is so tragic that you can't just put it out of your mind with the two words, and now this. And normally it is used to move on to something far more frivolous and trivial. It's escapism. If we can just shut out the problems of life and enter into something which is not real, then pleasure can be found. We are surrounded by windows of opportunity, portals into a fairy tale world where things are better, where perception becomes reality and your experience of life is no longer life outside of the garden but it is in a make-believe world. Just enough make-believe to give you enjoyment and pleasure. As with all misplaced efforts for happiness, escapism brings unhappiness. 
life in this world and not another is the life that we're meant to live. We are supposed to live our lives in this world. Broken people, enjoying real relationships, enjoying real relationships with real people in real time, understanding that the gospel should inform our worldview, understanding that it is precisely the brokenness of life that God, in his wisdom, is able to use as the means by accomplishing his plan of redemption. To avoid the brokenness of life and enter into something which is not real is to turn your back on God's design for life east of Eden. It is precisely the brokenness that God, in all of his perfection, uses as a means and a vehicle to usher us forward towards the culmination of all things. Pleasure by escape doesn't work. Solomon moves on, and the second means is what I've called pleasure by elevation. Pleasure by elevation, verses 4 through 8. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Solomon was a man of incredible wealth. He was a man of incredible wisdom, incredible talent. How did he use those gifts? Well, here we see that he built things. He was a builder. He sets upon a building project. I made great works. What did he build? He built houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, pools, forests. How impressive were these? Again, 1 Kings tells us in chapter 7 that he spent 13 years building his own house. That's quite some house. And then if it's true, what we suggest that Solomon was not a half-hearted guy, but was always rushing full on to, to these kind of things, then we can infer that everything in this list was extravagant. Notice the plurals. He didn't build a house, he built houses. He didn't build a vineyard, he built vineyards, gardens, parks, pools, and forests. This is quite some kingdom. Now, what is going on here? It is not simply a move from the sensual to the material. It's not simply a move from the sensual to the material as a means of finding lasting pleasure. But again, the first few chapters of Genesis are so instructive, and here is where commentators note that there is an increased frequency of creation terminology in this passage. There are many, many terms being employed here that point us back to the first chapter of our Bibles. I made, just like God made. I planted, just like God planted. I planted a garden, just like God planted a garden. In the garden were all kinds of trees, just like God put all kinds of trees in the garden. I watered them just as God watered them, and they sprouted just as those trees in Eden sprouted. This collocation of Edenic language seems to suggest that Solomon is not simply embarking on any old building project. It would seem that Solomon is trying to recreate Eden. He's trying to claw back that which was lost. Paradise regained. Eden retried. 
The problems with that are manifold. First of all, as we've already noted this evening, man cannot create that which is good. Good in the sense that God can create that which is good. But more fundamental than that, more serious a problem than that, is the fact of if Solomon here is creating Eden, then that would infer that he is positioning himself as God. This is the pursuit of pleasure by elevation. And it accords precisely with the testimony that we have of his life in those first few chapters of Kings, a man that had forgotten who he was before God. And the second that you forget your position before God, you start to try and assume the position of God. The second that you forget who you are before a holy creator, that is when you start to try and become the creator, assuming a power and ability that you don't have. Pursuit of pleasure will be sought by elevating oneself. Will it work? You be the judge. What does Solomon's Eden look like? In verse 7, we see that he bought male and female slaves. Why is that? Because the creator must populate the creation. But Solomon is not God, so he can't create man and woman to be free and to live a life of freedom in humble admission to God. He has to buy slaves and enforce them to worship and to work for him. He puts them in bondage. Now, the slaves will die. Why? Because we're east of Eden and now death is a reality. And so he must raise up more slaves. And so you see that he had slaves who were born in his house. That is the next generation of slaves, the children of the slaves. So now we have generation upon generation of slaves being raised up in Solomon's house, enforced into labor and worship of the king. It doesn't sound much like Eden to me. And you see he had many flocks and much gold. So now we're getting dangerously close to direct violation of the law that was given all the way back in Deuteronomy. In chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, it says concerning kings of Israel, you will not have for yourself much gold. So his pursuits are not only enslaving men and women, but they are leading him away from a path of obedience to the law of the Lord. He has singers. Why? Because creation must praise its creator. And then he has concubines. Not only again violating the law of Deuteronomy chapter 17, which says not only do not have much gold, but you will not have many wives for yourself. But this is now a departure from Genesis chapter 2. One man and one woman in union together. But Solomon, positing himself to be God, he now gets to make the rules. No more Edenic matrimony. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He has a complete disregard for the standards of God. This is not paradise regained. This is a living nightmare. And it's all because he pursued pleasure without a right acknowledgement of God. The delights of the sons of man for the disobedient, rebellious, fallen offspring of Adam. How might I find pleasure? It is not by escape. That didn't work. It is not by elevating oneself. And surely, surely we are nowhere close to this kind of sin. Surely we are nowhere close to this kind of endeavor as a means of finding pleasure. Friend, do not forget that in 19, 
31, James Adam wrote the American epic, within which he coined the phrase, the American dream, about which he said, the American dream is a dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely but a dream of social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable. Now, are there some commendable principles in that aspiration? Absolutely. Are there some things missing? Absolutely. Not least a proper consideration of the world we live in and a right consideration of the God who made us. And over the many generations, this imperfect ideal has become even more distorted. And now it is the ethos of the Western world. What does it look like? Millions of men and women trying to create their own little Edens. Moving from one expression of pleasure to the next expression of comfort to the next expression of amusement supposing themselves to be God, supposing that they have the right and the power and the ability to define the contours of their life. And just as with Solomon, elevation of self within an artificial Eden does not work. Invariably, it results in a departure from God's best for you in a broken world. And the issue is not simply that we live in an age where you can have whatever you want whenever you want it. We live in an age where you can have whatever you want, whenever you want it, and that is a serious problem. But that is not the most dangerous issue. The most dangerous issue for us as a society is the fact that we live in a time where if there is something that you don't want, you can just push it out. If there is a, a reality of life east of Eden that you don't want to feel, we live in a time where you can just make it disappear. We see this across society. Think about divorce. It was not that long ago when it was really hard to get a divorce. The secular courts recognized the sanctity of marriage, and they would make the process of divorce incredibly complex, and it was always needed to find some form of guilt, usually adultery. It was not that long ago when we lived in a time, as one writer said, that every divorce was viewed as the death of a small civilization. And now we live in a time of no-fault divorce. You can get a divorce virtually on demand, and certainly no guilt needs to be apportioned to anybody. In today's eyes, in society's eyes today, every single marriage is provisional. It is a contract which is intact for so long as it serves both parties. And the second it doesn't, it can be broken. Why? To maintain your own Eden. Marriage too hard. Don't want to work through the issues. Just end it. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. There is a sense of hopelessness found in the pages of what appears to be Solomon's final work. It doesn't end that way, however. His next to last verse from this book says this, quote, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, end quote. Solomon may have lost his way during his middle years, but he does not appear to have ended life in that state. You know, our plight before Christ was hopeless. 
But praise God, because of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, it doesn't end there. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you'd like to learn more about the world as God sees it, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts for an archive of wisdom-filled teachings from Pastor Twist. Tomorrow is part five as we continue in our series, Where Can Meaning Be Found? Hope you'll join us then. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.